Hello and welcome to episode 344 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. This will air on Monday, April 4th of 2022. The next registration deadline is Wednesday, April 27th. That's for the June 2022 LSAT. If you're not sure, don't need to register now. Just wait until April 27th or the 26th or whatever. Um, and yep. wait until your practice tests are as high as you want them to be. If you have not joined Nathan's April 2022 LSAT study group, or actually, well, when is the April LSAT? Gosh, um, I don't even know. I don't know, but the study group will change to a June 2022 uh, class immediately. So just it's every other Thursday. We could just call it the study group. Um, you can I ask think me that might any be question. More, yeah. <laughs> That'll be easier. So yeah, anyways. you can ask you can ask uh, any question. So uh, all you need is a demon free account. Again, every other Thursday, 4 p.m. Pacific, 7 p.m. Eastern. Come talk to me about uh, the demon, about your law school plans, about how to prep for the LSAT. I'm here to help. Today on the show, we had uh, a logical reasoning question from Prep Test 73. Turned out to be a supported question, one of those um, passage based, evidence based types of questions where. Uh, you really need to pick an answer that is firmly rooted in the facts. We also had uh, a couple emails from listeners. Those are people who emailed help at thinkinglsat.com. Please email help at thinkinglsat.com anytime you want to get anything on the show. And we had uh, a guest, Judy, the YouTube lawyer. All right. We have a question here from test 73. This is uh, section four, question eight. I'm going to read the passage and let Ben react to it. Okay. Fluoride enters a region's groundwater when rain dissolves fluoride bearing minerals in the soil. Okay. So I'm just imagining it raining somewhere in some foresty area. It doesn't have to be, of course, it's just in the soil, but as the water goes through that soil, it encounters fluoride-bearing minerals, and um, presumably it's dissolving that, and then the fluoride is continuing down into the ground, deeper into the groundwater. Okay, it's just a fact. I'm like, got it. Is this the only way fluoride enters a region's groundwater? I have no idea. I'm sure other ways could exist. I, I don't know. Okay, you just know that this is a thing that happens. Yep. Mm-hmm. But we don't know. Maybe there's other ways. Other ways, okay. yep. Mm-hmm. In a recent study, researchers found that when rainfall, concentrations of fluoride-bearing minerals and other relevant variables are held constant. Okay. Mm-hmm. So everything's staying the same. Fluoride concentrations in groundwater are significantly higher in areas where the groundwater also contains a high concentration of sodium. It's a long okay. sentence. That's going. It's going on there. Yeah. So first of all, this is the end of the argument, and it, it doesn't seem like, or the passage, it doesn't seem like an argument. It's just like, okay, I was given a fact at the beginning, and now I'm given the results of a study which are saying that, hey, look, if we hold everything constant except sodium, sodium seems to be correlated, well, high levels of sodium seem to be correlated with higher concentrations of fluoride in the groundwater. So 
I don't know why. I don't know why that is, but I'm speculating that maybe sodium helps fluoride dissolve <laughs> faster. I don't know. Other yeah. relevant variables is doing a lot of work there, huh? It is. It it, it does give me pause because it's like all other. What is it? And other doesn't say all, but assuming it's all, other relevant variables are held constant. So nothing else is at play here. Yeah, I guess it didn't say all, but but so I, I think maybe we have to assume that that just means some, but some includes yeah. the possibility of all. Sure. So we read that and we go, wow, you you held other relevant variables constant, like all other relevant variables. Yeah. I, I don't know how you did that, but if you if you did, okay, so there's a Yeah, I don't know how you do that, but if you if you did do that, then even though there's a, only a correlation shown here between sodium and fluoride, um, boy, I have to <laughs> have to assume there's maybe some causal connection here because everything else is staying the same. Yeah. So the question then says, which yep. one of the following can most reasonably be concluded on the basis of the researcher's findings? Okay. This is a supported question or a must be true question. I, I basically just have to ask myself which one of the following answers follows from the facts that they gave me. And that's not surprising that they're asking this question because the original passage was just two <laughs> facts, right? So, okay. All right. So you're asking which one of these can I prove, right? You're going to yep. have to be able to vouch for it. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> that means you have to understand it. Step yep. one. Yep. And you have to be willing to go, well, yeah, these facts say this, so I'm picking this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I can support it with evidence from the record. Right. A, fluoride-bearing minerals are not the primary source of fluoride found in groundwater. Uh, I don't know, actually. Uh, we, you actually asked about this at the very beginning. We know that when rain dissolves fluoride-bearing minerals in the soil, fluoride enters the groundwater, but maybe fluoride could enter the groundwater from other sources, maybe just dumping. So are they the primary source or not the primary source? I have no idea. Yeah. I mean, they only gave us one source in the passage, yep. right? Like mm -hmm. we're looking for something we could prove. Yep. The only source that they talked about was fluoride bearing minerals <laughs> in the soil. <laughs> yeah. So the not in a is like, is bizarre. Yeah. Even if the knot wasn't there, if the knot wasn't there, it would be a better answer, right? I, I don't know. I don't know if it. it's on a gradient because I, it's still not. I don't know, right? So I would still. I don't know, and therefore not true, right? Or I, I not just correct. What right. I'm saying is the only one that we know about is fluoride bearing min sure, minerals in sure. the soil. So it's so slightly better, right? There's vouching there's for the opposite claim. of that is like what? <laughs> well, yeah. How do I? Huh? Okay, B. Rainfall does not affect fluoride concentrations in ground in groundwater. Uh, if anything, it 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 does. So, yeah, the fact that they held rainwater constant in the study doesn't mean that rainfall doesn't affect the amount of fluoride in the groundwater. Absolutely, they just yep. they they were hold. I mean, they seem to be acknowledging that it probably does. Yeah, they were holding That's it, why constant. They held it constant. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Otherwise, it could have affected the the amount in the groundwater. Right. C. Sodium bearing minerals dissolve at a faster rate 
than fluoride bearing minerals. Okay, I don't I don't know anything about uh, sodium sodium bearing minerals, so I'm just gonna stop there. Oh, they didn't even mention sodium bearing minerals. They mentioned sodium in the groundwater, but we have no yeah. idea whether sodium bearing minerals are even a thing. That's a good yep. point. We certainly wouldn't be able to compare the rate at which they dissolve. Okay. So we have three terrible answers at which point <laughs> now, are you feeling good or are you feeling bad? Oh, I'm feeling good. Yeah. I mean, at this That's, point, if, if I close my eyes and picked an answer, at least I'd have a 50, 50 shot, which would be stupid, but I, I could, right? <laughs> That's an important point. This is a, uh, well, I guess it doesn't even matter what type of question. You conclusively have eliminated A, B, and C. You're yep. just like, ain't no way I'm picking those. Mm-mm. And at that point, you should be feeling really good because four out of five answers are wrong. So yeah. like, you're looking for reasons why they're wrong and letting them go. But goodbye. Goodbye. Mm-hmm. D, sodium in groundwater increases the rate at which fluoride-bearing minerals dissolve. This is a little stronger than what I predicted. I I thought there was some sort of connection between fluoride and sodium. This is going a little bit further saying, yeah, uh, what it specifically does is it, um, the sodium in the groundwater, I didn't know if it was in the groundwater or actually just in the ground and then coming down into the groundwater, but that increases the rate at which fluoride bearing minerals dissolve. Okay. I don't love it, but I also think, yeah, there is some connection here. So I'm going to keep it open. Okay. Yeah. I mean, you could certainly make a case for it. I'll let you make that case after we get rid of probably E. Soil that contains high concentrations of sodium bearing minerals also contains high concentrations of fluoride bearing minerals. No, the same problem with C. I mean, I I don't know about sodium bearing minerals and then like the concentration levels and then comparing that. So, so at this point, we're picking D and just moving on. Like we've conclusively eliminated A, B, C, and E. And no way in hell I'm picking those answers. They're wildly speculative. Ben had a quibble with D. He was like, Mm -hmm. whoa, I don't, uh, boy. But you have to vouch for one of these five. Mm -hmm. So explain to me, Ben, why does D make sense given what it said in the record? Like how does the record support D? Well, the record supports D because we know that if there's a high concentration of sodium and everything else else is held constant, then fluoride concentrations in groundwater are higher, significantly higher. Why are they higher? Well, given what they had said in the passage, talking about fluoride-bearing minerals being dissolved and so forth, it's not unreasonable to conclude that the sodium in the groundwater is what's causing that rate to increase. I just don't like the specificity of the answer. At the same time, look, the question said, which one of the following can most reasonably be concluded on the basis of the researcher's finding? Not necessarily what must be true, and that's kind of how I was approaching it. Like, does this absolutely have to be true? Is this the way in which the fluoride rate increased in the groundwater? Probably, even if it's not necessarily true. Well, and especially if they controlled for all other relevant variables, Mm -hmm. right? That's one way that we could interpret the facts. Yeah. If they had, in fact, controlled for all other relevant variables, then it's like the only thing that, that fluctuates is the sodium in the water. And we do know that fluoride enters a region's groundwater when rain dissolves fluoride-bearing minerals in the soil. Mm-hmm. That mm-hmm. could be the only way that fluoride gets into the groundwater, by the way. 
Mm-hmm. Right. So we would have to be like interpreting the first fact in that way and then interpreting the second fact in that way. And now it starts to look like sodium and fluoride are super tightly related to one another. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. And I mean, it is what we talked about at the end of the passage, right? There's got to be some sort of connection here. Yeah. They were inviting you to consider, oh, so sodium has something to do with whatever. But mm-hmm. but like the the wrong answers here are like kind of it's just so obvious how they are. It's not like they're second best. They're just wrong. Mm-hmm. C, mm-hmm. T- C and E each talking about sodium bearing minerals. A and B seem like they're opposite of what the facts said. Yeah. You know, I bet they when they put in sodium bearing minerals, they're just hoping that some people read this too fast, right? You you remember fluoride bearing minerals. Right. So you kind of think assume that there was sodium bearing minerals too and <laughs> this is an excellent teaching question especially for beginners, right? The LSAT's easier than you think it is, but you have to make it easy by actually understanding it. Mhm. This 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 question makes perfect sense and all you have to do is read it carefully because there's really only one answer that you can vouch for at all. Mm-hmm. Okay. Answer is D. All right. Well, let's uh, jump back into these emails. We have an email from Anonymous. Says, hey, y'all. I've enjoyed the discussion on education the past few weeks, so I decided to write in. Back in 2019, I was a tutoring student of Nathan's and a personal statement victim on the show. (laughs) I ended up turning down a scholarship to law school thanks to three things. The show, the personal statement tear down, and Nathan's three keys Venn diagram. During my statement review, you said my statement sounded like a different career path. I've left that part unspecific for anonymity purposes. And that is the one I chose. Currently, I'm getting paid to earn a PhD as a graduate assistant while running my own business. And yes, being your own boss is awesome. Now to the discussion at hand. I agree with you both that education is in a tough spot due to the outrageous cost and the saturation of the bachelor's degree market. However, I have to disagree that people in general should avoid college. Don't you think that there are many people who are meant to go to college to become doctors, lawyers, engineers, and other professions that require real educations? I'm genuinely curious what you think about this, as I'm always, and he says weary here. <laughs> this is the thing that kids do. When they say weary, they mean wary. Wary, but they say without weary. The I get, yeah. It fucking kills me, but anyway. Weary, I'm you're all, worn out. <laughs> <laughs> tired. Um, well, maybe he is, but he meant wary, uh, which means guarded or careful. Uh, yeah. I'm wary about pushing everyone toward entrepreneurship. Entrepreneurship is not easy, and it's not always for the faint of heart, says Anonymous. I'd love to hear your thoughts as someone in higher education and who works with and teaches college students every day. Thanks for everything. I still listen every week. And that is from Anonymous. You know, I was actually thinking about this the other day, in part because of my concerns that I aired on the show and um, just the cost of education. And I have more than one kid who is like about to go on this path, right? And so I look at the cost of it. I look at their preparedness. And I was thinking about it. And I, I do, I want that college experience for them because it's an opportunity to go hang out with other people that are in a similar situation as you get to know people experiment with classes that 
um, you may never have thought that you'd be interested in, right? Like I studied economics and in undergrad, and I never had any inclination to do that until my brother told me to take an econ class and I loved it. So <laughs> I think that there is a lot that college has to offer. I just have to square that with the fact that it's now just overpriced, dramatically overpriced. And so um, here, Anonymous is talking about entre entrepreneurship versus college. And I don't feel like those are the only two choices we're looking at. We're also looking at community college. We're looking at um, trade schools. We're looking at getting some work experience and then going to school so you can really leverage it. I don't know. It's, it's not just an either or sort of thing in my mind. And I'm just trying to grapple with the price. Like, how can we find a school out there that's worth what you're paying? <laughs> yeah. I'm not telling people don't go to college. Yeah. But I am um, wary of people going to college right out of high school. You know, you're 17, 18 years old, going to this unfamiliar environment, putting debt on the ledger mm -hmm. that you might be struggling to repay when you're 40. Mm -hmm. Also putting grades on the ledger that might change. They might impact your future, like in ways that you never imagined. I never thought I would go to law school. I had no idea that I was going to go to law school. I mean, I shouldn't have, but it, I did. And I, like, yeah. I took classes when I was 18 that they used for law school admissions when I was 30. Yeah. And that was a waste of money. And I got bad grades because I wasn't, I didn't know what I was doing. And so I firmly believe that, you know, if, you, if you're going to find happiness in your career, which I have, like I'm happier than anybody in my career because I do something that I'm good at and I love it. And I can get paid to do it. And I'm like, just right in that sweet spot. Mm -hmm. And entrepreneurship is a good way to get there for many people. But I had to try and fail like 15 things. I could go through the litany of all the jobs I've had, but I have had many, many jobs. And most of them I had for like a year Yeah. and washed out. And I have three graduate degrees, <laughs> none of which really directly support what I ended up doing. Mm -hmm. as a humble podcaster and LSAT teacher. But, you know, I just, the thing that people need to do is they need to try shit and fail fast. And I, I do think community college is an excellent option for young folks, because here's the thing, go to community college or, or, or real college, if you can get a scholarship, but like, don't impoverish yourself and do get good grades. Like you should be excelling at the stuff you do. I guess that's the point that I really want to try oh, to get absolutely. across to people. Look, if, if you go to school and you pay more than it's worth, unfortunately, just because of the nature of the system, but you get really good grades, then you're getting much more of the value out of that expense than you are if you go there and fail. Be excellent or quit. And I guess people don't understand, like, so academia, you were talking about this whole exploration, hmm. but young people have to be careful about that shit. Like you don't want your kids to be exploring and getting B's and C's. 
I yeah. mean, I mean, what I guess I'm they, not as worried. I, I hopefully you do well. What if one of your kids wants to go to grad school at some point? I mean, like knowing well, what we know I'd rather now, they'd be heading in the right direction. Yeah, exactly. And, but <laughs> I guess I mean, I just what I'm saying is. When you go into academia, you should be careful about the the other layers of academia behind this first one. Like they academics, future academics take your previous performance super, super seriously. Mm-hmm. And so you just shouldn't be putting bad grades on your record. Yeah, I just don't I don't want it to become like I, I do want people to be comfortable enough to fail at things to fail fast even in school like okay so you got to see in that class don't take more classes like that which classes did you do well in pursue those find things that you enjoy and learn from that so yeah I you, mean, you I gotta write that ship like immediately though and you've mm-hmm. got to be real careful you know you need to not do that again mm-hmm. what do you think about Anonymous's claim that entrepreneurship is not easy and not always for the faint of heart. Any comments about that as an entrepreneur? Um, yeah, I mean, I've, (laughs) I've made mistakes. I've made a lot of mistakes and there were a lot of years that weren't super profitable. So there was, I, um, I don't know how common this path is, but I definitely worked and worked on my business at the same time. So I had like a quote real job and then worked at night on my business on strategy, you know, until it became profitable enough to leave the the daytime job. So it's not like, you know, I was working during the day and then going home and just watching TV or something. <laughs> I definitely put in a lot of hours that didn't pay off right away. So some people, I just know they're not, they're not interested in that at all. They want to show up and get a paycheck on day one. And it's a different mindset and it's a different trade-off I prefer this one strongly, but I can see other people who prefer it otherwise. Yeah, like I'm sort of working all day, every day. I'm also mm-hmm. sort of never working. Yeah. Like yeah. I have very limited things that I have to do on any time timeline, right? I show up for this podcast. I teach my classes. Those are the only things that I really have to do on, like on a schedule, which mm-hmm. suits me. I really like that. Yeah, like I... You know, I worry like what happens if business dries up? I worry about what happens if I don't know, like there's ways that the whole thing could potentially come crumbling down and you are taking that risk. You're also dealing with just like little annoyances all the time. It's like you you don't have a there's no higher court to appeal to. Right. You can't just like put it off on your <laughs> boss or whatever and go like, yeah, I can't do this. I don't know. You yeah. You have to like make a fucking decision and yeah. you have to take action. Or decide that you're not going to take action, but you have to like just you're constantly just making these decisions that are like, well, I don't know. I'm doing the best I can under conditions of uncertainty Mm -hmm. Uh, in ways. It's like being a professional poker player or something where you're just like, yep, I don't have all the information, but I have some information and I got to just kind of do what I what the information that I have supports and hopefully it'll work, you know? Yeah. Uh, thankfully I have you, a partner is like really good for entrepreneurs. Um, yeah, you know, I, I know that I at least can talk to Ben. Well, it's funny cause we both, right. Did it on our own for right. years <laughs> Yeah, and then we'd done it together. And I feel like it's definitely a situation where two people equals like four. <laughs> right. Right. Oh, As for sure. To, yeah. It's, 
it's it's nice to just be able to like talk to Ben if I if I'm struggling with a decision. It's nice to just like Ben knows where I'm coming from and has shared interests and we can talk it out and figure out the decision that we both want to go with. That's great. Mm-hmm. We also just make way better decisions. We can specialize, right? Like there's kind of my domain and your domain and we yep. do the things that we uh, have affinity for. So that's, yeah, but <laughs> that's true. We did, we each did it on our own, like just completely for 10 years where it was like mm-hmm. the, there's the buck was only going to stop with you yep. or the buck was only going to stop with me. And it is much, much better. It feels like safer and it feels, I don't know. Well, and we've been, I feel like we've been wildly more productive and successful since we started. I think the, together. the, yeah, the focusing, right. It's like you're, you're leveraging. <laughs> it's like, Oh, you take care of that. Like there are so many emails that come in. I'm like, that's Nathan's domain. So See you later. Yeah, just <laughs> go over there. Yeah. And yeah. I do the same thing. You know, yeah. people ask me development questions and I'm like, nope, I'm not me. Yeah. Technical shit. Nope. Go over there. <laughs> I don't know. Um, maybe wrap it up here for anonymous yeah. people. Of course, anonymous. Yeah. Like, you know, if you're going to be a doctor or an engineer or. Yeah. There are things where you need that acad- the stamp of academia. And that doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. But I guess my rule would be don't impoverish yourself and don't put bad grades on your record mm-hmm. because future academic, it's like you're insulting the king or something like they, they will remember future academics are going to look back at your grades 10 years from now and be like, oh yeah, well, I don't know what, what are you know, your GPA is 3.2. What? Yeah. So if you are going to go to college, I just think you should be excelling at it or you should be really you should be paring back or or failing fast in some way. Yeah, well, getting even in my mind, I guess we're a little bit different here. Even if you get some some, I think we agree that you can't get many bad grades. You you should be engaging with the school and getting as much out of your classes as you possibly can. And yet so many people, right, it's just the next step and they go there and they're they're not really leveraging all the um, opportunities that that institution is providing you. Yeah. Like what about just auditing classes? I mean, you can audit classes without even being enrolled. Mm -hmm. You can take classes pass, no pass without putting permanent shit on your record that's going to count against you for future academics. I don't know. There's just so many ways to explore things, you know, including like, oh, okay. So you think you want to go to, you think you want to be a doctor? You think you want to go the pre-med route? I mean, I think you should do some preparation before you start your freshman year of college. (laughs) Well, how about this? Get a YouTube premium account for whatever it is, 10 bucks a month and start binging like videos on this profession. Can you tolerate that? If you can't tolerate that, then maybe. (laughs) Well, and, and, so that, yes, great suggestion. And the college coursework that's going to be re- required. I mean, mm-hmm. it's like the most common story in the world that people start as pre-med and then wash out after a year or two because they can't cut it in the hard ass academic classes that they're going to have to take those first couple of years. Yeah. So, you know, don't just like, oh, I'm going to be a doctor, start college and then get a C in chemistry. Mm hmm. Like do the preparation before you, and and that's why, that's like why my advice, you know, triple, triple down on just be real careful about dipping your toe into those academic waters because 
you might not be mature enough. You might not be prepared enough. It might be harder than you think. You might not be able to get the right grades if you go full time, living mm -hmm. away from home for the first time and studying hard stuff. You you might not everybody is going to immediately thrive in that environment. And so it's like there are too many people like me or like I, boy, I had some college friends in town this week and there were like some super smart too. I can think of two super smart guys yeah. who both did exactly that. Like they kind of thought they were pre-med, but then they didn't get good enough grades in their first couple of years. And it's like, well, yeah, because you were living in the dorms and you were partying and you were like trying to figure out what it's like to be an adult in the world. And isn't that tragic, Ben, that these people spent however many tens of thousands of dollars on college? Yeah. And also just like washed out of there's no fucking reason why these people can't be doctors. But yeah. but academia failed them or because, that you know, it looks like they failed in academia. Yeah. Well, yeah, but they didn't get any counseling. They didn't get any support. They didn't know what they were getting themselves into. They're at this giant. This was at UC Davis, you know, 20,000 undergrads. Yeah. And it's like grist for the mill. It's like, <laughs> oh, sure. Some people just totally kill it in the first year. And those people just they're on the pre-med path. And, oh, yeah, you can go to UC Davis and become a doctor. You can do anything, yeah. you know. And it's like, yeah, but what about all these people who had all this talent and paid all this money, spent all this time, and then they ended up going and doing, you know, they just they thought they couldn't cut it. I just yeah. I refuse that. I refuse to believe that they couldn't cut it. Mm -hmm. I don't know. Be, be careful, right? Like it, it would have been, it would have been so much better for them to take one class. Like, okay, I've graduated from high school. I'm going to enroll in chemistry 101 and I'm going to get an A in it. Mm -hmm. Like potentially that might mean live at home, save money, only have one class and kill it, get an A. <laughs> And now you're on, you're still on the, like, you could be a fucking neurosurgeon. Yep. Well, it's also smart, right? Because now you're, you're, you're doing what we always talk about in the LSAT. And that is to read and understand each sentence, understand each class. How many people got a B minus or even a B in a class and didn't fully understand it. So then you're going to the next level class in that domain. And now, yeah, you're struggling because you don't understand the basic concepts as well as the guy sitting next to you like yeah be civilized <laughs> go through this and just understand it and if you really understand it then when the test throws you a curveball it's not a curveball because you're like well i understand what's going on and other people are like well they didn't say that we we're going to get tested on that it's like yeah but it would follow logically if you understood everything else that was going on in this class <laughs> i mean that's just how the world works you don't prepare with tips and tricks, you just get it. You really get it. And then everything falls into place. These, these people that anonymous is talking about who, who require, who they want to go into a quote profession that requires a real education, that real education almost always includes grad school, lawyers, doctors, engineers. Yeah. You're probably going, that's probably a, a, a master's at least, and maybe a JD, MD, PhD, who knows what. Well, you've got to think about the long, the long run in academia and, you know, you, you, yeah, you do need a real education, but like that, that involves getting A's in <laughs> those basic classes because you're just not, 
you're not going to get into med school with B's and C's in hard classes, chemistry, organic chemistry, physics, calculus, biology, all those things. And, you know, you could take longer to Mm -hmm. assemble like that foundation, the academic foundation Mm -hmm. and just make a much better applicant of yourself. I don't I don't think that that is like, I don't know, just 18 years old, go off to a four year college <laughs> seems like a super risky path to that, to even to those careers that people traditionally did go off on, on that path. Yeah, it seems like community college would be the better route for those yeah. people. All right. Anyway, let's wrap that up there. Let's do this one email real quick from Car, Jack, Car Guy Jake, and then we'll get our guest on. And it's uh, apropos because it's someone who has a lower GPA, and I think that might have, you know, cool. cut into Car, Jake, uh, Car Guy Jake's uh, chances. Anyways, did you read the last one? I can't even remember now. Yes, I did. Go ahead. Okay. Hey, guys. I wanted to check in and let you know that I received a full tuition offer. If you recall, I was the car salesman who went from a 156 to a 171 using the Demon. My GPA was an abysmal 2.97, but I am happy to report that I was offered a full tu- that I was offered full tuition at the University of Georgia. Lost. Thank you. F- yep. Thank you for helping me get the LSAT score I needed and for going over my personal statement on the show. Yeah, no problem. Maybe you can give me some advice. My goal is to practice in Salt Lake City at a mid-sized firm but I was waitlisted at both Utah and BYU. However, I have several reasonable scholarship offers and money from the Army to help me pay for school. Here's what I have. UGA, full tuition plus $10,000 a year in military benefits. Wow, that's awesome. University of Florida with Army tuition assistance is full tuition plus four to $5,000 in military benefits. Emory is total cost of tuition over three years. And then... $8,500? No, minus $8,500. Oh, so this is actual math. Okay, yeah. minus $8,500. At least that's how I read it, yeah. Yeah, I don't understand that fully, but okay. That's the only way it makes sense. Yeah. Um, ASU is full tuition with Army assistance. Okay. My wife doesn't want to move to Phoenix, and I have spoken to ASU alumni who work in Salt Lake City and say that ASU will only have a marginal advantage in Utah placement compared to the other schools. So I'm not thrilled about that option. What do you think? Do any of these schools offer me a better chance of placement in Utah? Again, thank you so much for everything. Blah, blah, blah. Hey, my initial gut reaction to this is if ASU has only a marginal advantage in Utah, go to the school that's going to give you the most money. (laughs) Follow the money. I I think that just because that's going to indicate that you're probably also going to do the best at that school. And those grades are going to do more for you to get back into, uh, Salt Lake City. Yeah. You you talked to alums from ASU and they were like, yeah, ASU doesn't really do that much for you in, in Salt Lake. That's all you need to know. Yeah. They've, they've told you what you need to know. The rankings don't matter. Go to, go to, sounds like Georgia, full, they're going to no tuition and you're going to get 10 grand a year from the government. Do that. Save money. Yeah. Your wife doesn't want to go to Arizona anyway. So just, just go. Georgia sounds like the move. Yep. Read uh, Car Guy Jake's PS and then we'll. Okay. I applied to 25 schools and got the full ride on my last application. Wow. 25 is a lot, but yeah, yeah, if Jake would have applied for 24 schools, he wouldn't have gotten that full ride. He's going to end up with paying no tuition 
and getting a $10,000 check every year from the government, uh, hopefully incur minimal debt. It's cheap to live in Georgia, so that's good. And, you know, he he's going to set himself up for success here. Is that going to guarantee him uh, like a gravy train when he moves to Salt Lake? No, but he's a hustler. He's going to be networking. Um, he's going to be probably following Rachel Gezersay's advice about networking now uh, for those jobs three years in the future. This seems like a win all around. By the way, that's, again, somebody who went from 156 to 171 using the demon, a splitter with terrible grades below 3.0 and still is going to not pay for law school. So love it when people um, take our advice. Keep in touch, Jake. Yep. Let us know how it goes, please. Guest on the show today is Judy Sang. Judy is an attorney in North Carolina. She graduated from UC Berkeley undergrad and Georgetown Law. What was your uh, undergrad uh, at Berkeley? I was a, an ethnic studies major. Ethnic studies at UC Berkeley. You must have gotten good enough grades uh, because it got you into Georgetown. Yeah, my grades weren't the best. I think that's probably why I didn't even bother applying for much higher ranked law schools, although I did apply to Yale and I got rejected. So um, yeah, my GPA was only barely a 3-3 because I had taken some science classes that really messed up my GPA. Okay, a common story. You must have done well on the LSAT. Um, yeah, so I got a 170, which I used to think was great, but then I looked up and saw what you guys scored and the people who work for your company. <laughs> That's incredible. You know, like I think I only have... Maybe a few friends that scored above 173, and um, my ex-husband, who is a professor now, um, probably scored like a 178 or 179. So, yeah. So I also taught the LSAT for a little bit, too, to make ends meet a long time ago. Okay. Cool. After six years of working for small law firms in Northern Virginia, Raleigh, and Durham, and you say that that was for meager pay. You started your solo law practice in 2006. You now practice family law, employment law, general lit civil litigation, and you have a YouTube channel called Asian American Legal Focus. We found you as Judy, the YouTube lawyer. Uh, welcome to the show. Yes. Thank you so much for having me. We have a couple questions for from listeners. Um, Ben, do you have any specific questions for Judy or do you want to just dive into these uh, I would say, listener yeah, let's cover, questions? Cover these first and then, yeah, go from there. All right. Why don't you go ahead and uh, read Judy this first one? Yep. Our first email is from Grace. She says, hi, um, I'd love to hear Judy talk a bit about deciding what type of law to go into. I've heard advice from both ends of the spectrum. You should know what sector of law you want to go into before law school versus you will figure it out in law school. What are her thoughts on this? Love the show. Thanks, guys. That's from Grace. Well, I think ultimately you'll figure it out as you actually practice after law school, because when I first went into law school, I kept thinking being a tax attorney sounds good because I was always good at math and numbers. And, you know, there seems to be a lot of good paying, well paying jobs as a tax attorney. But then I only got a B in tax law with Professor Ginsburg. <laughs> and so 
Um, but my grades in law school really weren't that great. So by the time I was graduating, I was just thinking, I just want any job. Somebody give me a job. You know, I didn't really care what, what area of law it was. I was sort of interested in being a public defender, but those offices didn't even hire people until after you get your bar exam results and you're licensed. So um, by then I had already gotten a job with a small law firm doing all sorts of general civil litigation and employment discrimination cases. So um, that's basically how I wound up doing more civil litigation. And after I started my own practice, I started seeing that I was getting more and more business by doing divorce cases and custody cases. So that's grown into a very large part of my practice now. You're a, you have a solo practice or do you have other attorneys now that work for you? Oh, I'm solo and I actually I don't have any dreams of growing into a big law firm or having multiple offices. I like my life the way it is. Do you work from home or do you have an actual office that you go to? Um, I have an office, but ever since COVID happened, I've been meeting more and more people through Zoom, which is great. So I do have a home office, which is where I am now. So I just basically go to the office as needed. I do feel like I focus more when I'm actually in my real office, though. Um, it's kind of a bummer, though, because my office rent has gone up by more than double recently. But I, I still think it's really hard to just have a purely virtual law practice. Cool. We have uh, questions from Mike E. This is a whole bunch of questions. So Mike wants to know whether you know what areas of law are desperate for lawyers, if, if any. Mike suggests with artificial intelligence, blockchain, cannabis, and fintech becoming a thing. Do you think these would be popular for lawyers in the near future? I don't think so. You know, I mean, I've heard vaguely about cannabis law, but I'm in a state where it's not legal. So, you know, I don't know any attorneys that practice in that, maybe out in California. But, you know, I, I kind of feel like doing family law has turned out to be very lucrative for me because it never ends. You know, as long as people are having kids and fighting over them or having marital strife, people are still getting married, even though I think more and more young people are choosing to live together without being married. But it's, um, it's, it is lucrative, and I don't mean to just think that it's all about money or whatever, but of course, this is a profession, and you do hope to get more clients. So that is good to think about, well, what, what is a growing area of law, and where do you think that um, there might be more jobs available? Um, of course, criminal defense, I think that's always going to be around, too, because there's always going to be people charged with crimes who need to be defended. So I still think that's a good area of law to get into if you can get the clients. So, in other words, real jobs that actual lawyers have instead of <laughs> this notional idea. I mean, the law schools are so happy to talk about, oh, well, with all of these emerging technologies, and I'm sure that every year they say something slightly different, right? They just update whatever the most, whatever the latest headline thing is, right? So now they're out there talking about, well, you know, who knows what jobs will be available in artificial intelligence and blockchain and cannabis and fintech. It's like just every whatever random headline, right? But I mean, okay, do you know a lawyer who does those things? Like, do you know 
an artificial intelligence lawyer? Nope. And I don't know anybody that does space law either. Um, I know of one attorney that does animal law, but I'm not even really sure, like, how can you make a living doing animal law? So I don't know yeah. this person, but I, I've heard of her. So expect jobs that are practical and down to earth and just involve everyday conflict, right? Yeah, yeah. And uh, and as as what Nathan was mentioning, unfortunately, a lot of law schools don't even teach that. They focus on constitutional law, constitutional law too, you know, advanced evidence, procedure. You know, they act as if everybody's going to work for big law firms doing corporate law. And that's just like a very small smidgen of law school graduates who even get those types of jobs. So instead, the vast majority of people who graduate from law school, like myself, you know, we wind up helping real people with their real problems. And I graduated from law school having no idea how do you even file a small claims court lawsuit or where do you where do you go into courthouse? You know, how do you file a divorce case? But, you know, these are the practical aspects of practicing law that most law schools don't even teach you. We have a whole chain of questions here from Mike. What areas of law are overly saturated? Overly saturated? Should they be avoided? Mm. Well, I would probably say um, traffic law, because I've heard some attorney friends talk to me about how there are more and more graduates of law schools who flood the market. They can't find jobs, so they become solos, and they think, well, I'm going to go out there and do auto accident cases, personal injury, and traffic law because it it's not like rocket science. But on the other hand, you're still fighting for the same pool of potential customers, so the prices that these attorneys are charging just becomes lower and lower. So one of my friends said it's like a race to the bottom where people will start doing speeding tickets for less than $100 or whatever. I mean, I, I don't do traffic law, so I don't know how much people are charging these days. But it does seem to be like a glut of, you know, younger attorneys that are trying to market themselves doing traffic tickets. Hmm. I mean, they probably didn't set out for that career. <laughs> like they started law school with a different intention, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. And and like myself, you know, if you watch some of my videos, I started out thinking, well, you know, I'm a hot shot because I got into Georgetown Law School. I'm going to get a great job and, you know, make partners someday. And that never happened to me. Mike says, are people really impressed with top 14 law school degrees? Or is that some mystique that law schools created to build hype for themselves? No, I think um, for the highest paying jobs, it does matter because they're not going to be recruiting at schools that are lower ranked. Um, but, you know, coming to North Carolina, I don't think having a T14, you know, like a law degree from a better ranked national ranked law school really helps as much because people were happy to hire someone that graduated from Campbell Law School, which is a local law school, private school uh, located in Raleigh. But there are a lot of local judges and people who are law partners at the local regional firms around here who went to Campbell Law School. So I felt like I was actually at a big disadvantage coming from hmm. out of state. You were an outsider. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Even though you had a higher degree or a, high, a higher ranked, a much higher ranked law school. Hmm. Yeah. And that's that's another reason why I, I became a bitter lawyer who thought about quitting, quitting the legal <laughs> profession many times. 
But you didn't. <laughs> yeah, but I'm still practicing somehow, you know, 22 years later. So, I mean, I, I think I'm, I'm pretty happy now, especially since COVID happened. It's like, boy, you know, it's great to be self-employed as long as you can, you know, get enough clients and make a good living, you know, just be satisfied with what you have. I love the flexibility, you know, to be able to pick and choose what clients I want to take and if I'm too busy, or I'm too tired, you know, right now I'm sick. So I'm sorry, I sound a little weird. I'm, I'm sick. So it's kind of like, I don't even feel like taking on any new clients and more work the rest of this week. So, yeah. so the freedom is wonderful. I'm hmm. curious how much debt you had when you graduated from Georgetown. And uh, if if you were managed to pay that all off by now? Yeah, well, I mean, this is why I caution people against taking out student loans, because I was miserable in my career and I made lousy pay for the first six or seven years, but I didn't have any student loans because my parents paid. Um, my, my father was a doctor. Um, that's why he came to this country from Taiwan. Um, so my father had his own medical practice and then my parents moved back to Taiwan when I went off to Berkeley. So, um, so somehow they were able to afford to pay for all four of us kids to go to private schools, to go to graduate school and things. And um, unfortunately, as an attorney now, I feel like there's no way I could afford the same things for my kids because I chose the legal profession. So that's the economics of things. Yeah, the listeners need to hear that message. Judy is saying that she would not be able to afford law school for her kids because she's a lawyer. <laughs> well, I mean, maybe, well, first of all, I have already been telling, I have two children. I have already been telling them, don't go to law school. You know, sometimes I sing, don't be a lawyer to them. You know, that song from Crazy <laughs> yeah. Ex-Girlfriend. Yeah. So uh, number one, they are not going to law school anyway. And number two, if, if they did go to law school, I don't know. I mean, I guess maybe I could afford to pay for in-state tuition, but boy, you know, I, but I'll, although I think this is a problem for most people in general, is that the cost of higher education and graduate school have just totally zoomed up exponentially that most middle class people or even upper middle class people can't even afford to pay for it all anymore. It's not like in the 80s. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the scholarship, there's this race to give scholarships to the best qualified applicants, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to fight for us news rankings, right? So LSAT and undergraduate GPA are really super strong predictors, not just of whether you'll get in, but how much you'll pay to go there. Judy, I want to make sure that you're familiar with a tool that we have on our website, lsatdemon.com slash scholarships. We have an estimator, an estimator tool. Have you ever seen that, Judy? Oh, no, I, I haven't looked at I it. I would love for you to play around with it and let us know what you think of it. Um, it's something that I think you could probably share to people who are asking you questions about law school, because the truth is you can go for free at lots and lots of ABA schools if you have the right undergraduate GPA and especially LSAT, which can cover up for some sins in your undergraduate career, including like you did starting pre-med and then having to change gears. Um, so give that a shot when you get a chance, Judy, lsatdemon.com slash scholarships, because the, the truth is, you know, you're, it sounds like you're out there saying, don't go to law school. 
Well, and in ahead. general, in general, but I mean, as you're you're kind of getting to the point that that's why it's so important to have a very high LSAT score, because that's basically all that the law school can see, because if they have students from all sorts of different colleges, I mean, how are they supposed to know what a 3.2 at this school is versus a 3.8 at another school? So, you know, the LSAT is really your last chance to really, you know, set yourself apart from the crowd if you can break 170, then that really sets you apart from the average applicant. So, yeah. There are, I mean, I wouldn't be totally negative, though, because there are some decent legal jobs. You know, my little sister went to UNC Law School, and she got a great job working for a mid-sized law firm in Charlotte, and she loved it there. The people there were so nice, and, you know, she received mentoring. She was um, paid fairly well, even though it wasn't like real big law, but it wasn't small law either. So so there are plenty of people who are happy in their legal jobs. You just have to be able to have those options. Um, and of course, that usually means that you probably want to try to go to as good of a law school as you can so you have more job options and have the alumni connections. And then hopefully... But your sister mercifully didn't have to pay for law school, right? Your folks paid for her as well. Yes. And surprisingly, she did get a partial scholarship to UNC, which came out of the blue because she didn't even apply for any scholarships or whatever. We just assumed that she wasn't going to get financial aid. She didn't need loans anyway. And she was able to pay in-state tuition. But then UNC Hmm. just surprised us by knocking off an extra 5,000 or more. That's what they do. The law schools do that to try to attract high LSAT, high GPA, or some combination of LSAT and GPA. That's why our tool works so well to predict scholarships for law school. You don't have to do any separate application. It's just apply for admission, and then the schools will potentially offer you money when they offer you admission. Really, what's going on is economists would call it price discrimination. They're just charging everybody a different price. Um, they have a nominal tuition of whatever ridiculous number, $60,000 a year or something, you know, and, um, but the, the actual number that they're charging is, uh, going to vary student by student. So Mike asks, is it better to be a lawyer who specializes in one weird area of law, maybe like space law or zoning laws or something not common? Or to branch out and dabble in many things, such as wills, real estate, and family law, all at once. No, you definitely don't want to dabble in that many things. And actually, I have kind of waffled back and forth. Should I cut out employment law out of my practice area? Or, you know, I already decided mostly to cut out custody cases because I really dislike handling pure child custody cases that I found them to be so stressful. And the clients were usually more high maintenance. So um, definitely it's better to to niche down, but you kind of have to play it by ear because it depends on whether you can get enough clients too. So um, one very niche area that I do is federal EEO cases for federal employees who feel discriminated against. So there aren't too many employment law attorneys that number one, represent plaintiffs in this state, and number two, also have experience within the federal EEOC system. So I've gotten a lot of referrals from other attorneys, even employment lawyers, to do those types of cases, but it can't sustain my business, though, you know, so that's why I don't only sell myself as doing that type of law. 
I mean, what you're saying is niche is great, but it has to be a niche that actually exists. Like not a niche in space law, which is just like, who, what, <laughs> who's going to pay you to, what are you, what, <laughs> what is what that? kind of cases are they Yeah, having, but well, there are niches in big, like she's talking about some weird arcane federal employment, whatever. And there's like these huge areas of, of law that nobody even knows about, but that's like actual lawyers in there doing that type of work. Yeah, yeah, for for example, I do know one attorney. There's only one attorney I know in the whole state, so I refer cases to her, and she handles eminent domain cases where people mm. are landowners and the government wants to take over their land. So I have no idea how you practice that, but she's almost got like a monopoly because nobody else knows how to do that. Um, same thing sort of goes with like adoptions. You know, well, that's not that you know, specific of a, of a niche or niche, but um, there are some family lawyers that specialize more in adoptions. And so, you know, they get lots of referrals that way because some attorneys like myself, we don't really do adoptions on a regular basis. So we're happy to just turn it over to someone who specializes in that. I want to repeat one thing you said. You have no idea how to do, you know, a particular area of law. And I think that a lot of people have that misconception, right? They have some legal problem in their life and then they want to go to law school and try to solve it. They want to become that lawyer. And it's like, we have an actual lawyer here who's like, I don't know anything about that. That is a whole different field. It's a different field, right? Yeah, exactly. And even within family law. So I've also started doing more collaborative divorce and mediation. So that's another, you know, offshoot from doing family law. And I, I found that I really enjoy doing collaborative divorce cases. I really wish I could just sell myself as being a collaborative divorce attorney. But once again, I don't get enough cases in that area to just flat out cut out all the other areas of law that I handle and say, oh, I'm only doing collaborative divorce now because then I'd be sitting around eating beans and rice or something. <laughs> There's not enough people who want to collaborate on their divorce. <laughs> yeah, un unfortunately. Yeah, because most of the time people consult with attorneys because they already, you know, can't stand their spouse and they don't trust them or somebody's hiding assets or there was domestic violence. So there's no way mm. you could get them in a room together and everybody agrees to be honest and try to work out something to be fair to each other. Yeah. All right. Two more questions from Mike. Do you need experience to be an in-house attorney or is that something you can go into after law school? Um, in general, you do need to have experience for for most companies. They would probably want someone that has at least five to 10 years of experience in that particular field. But it, it really depends because I've heard of some young attorneys getting jobs within the UNC, University of North Carolina General Counsel's office. So I'm wondering, maybe they had some sort of connection. You know, there, there's just like so much nepotism, I feel, in the legal hiring field that if you know somebody, then even if you're not the most qualified or you didn't go to the best law school, then you still might have a chance if you know someone that's within the company or the employer. But in general, you should have um, a lot more experience to try to get an in-house counsel job. Yeah, I mean, I, people think that you learn stuff in law school that actually teaches you how to practice law. And that did not seem like my experience at all. I, I, you said you wouldn't have even known where to go to file 
anything. Me too. Like I, what? I, if I couldn't have been in-house counsel at some company, I graduated from law school and didn't know anything. I would have been like, uh, what? I don't know. How do you do any of anything? It was to me, it was more of an academic competition. Was that your experience as well? Um, yeah, I think so. Because, you know, everybody just thinks that, oh, first, you have to get on the main law review. And if you don't get on the main law review, get on a secondary journal and try to become editor of that. And then, of course, maybe, you know, get an internship during the school year, try to get a nice summer associate job at a big law firm. That didn't happen for me. Um, and um, yeah, this is also why I think that it is again, more important to go to as high ranked of a law school as possible, because otherwise you see so many people who graduate from lower ranked law schools who can't even find real jobs, and then they're scrambling and trying to be solo practitioners right out of law school, which sounds ridiculous because you didn't learn any or you barely learned any practical skills during law school. And then I don't even know how people handle it if they still have student debt or student loan debt, too. Like, how can you be a solo straight out of law school? You don't know how to do anything. You're probably going to commit malpractice. <laughs> and nobody right. will go yeah. to <laughs> No clients. <laughs> Unless they're desperate and really low income and nobody else wants to touch them. Last question. What is an assumption or myth about lawyers that you would like to dismiss for all to hear? That, that we're a bunch of liars, I think. I think, isn't that the stereotype is that the lawyers, the joke is, you know, how do you know the lawyer is lying when his lips are moving? Haha, <laughs> you know, but I, I wouldn't say that. I, I try to be a very honest person. And um, so maybe that's why some people feel that I'm not aggressive enough for them or whatever, because I don't tell people what they want to hear. And I try to give people an honest assessment. And since I don't, since I wasn't, you know, living in a huge amount of debt, I didn't feel financially, um, you know, constrained to take on cases that I didn't think were ethical, or to try to drive up litigation costs because I needed money to pay off my debts. So yeah, you know, not not every attorney is is just some like lying weasel out there trying to get money from people. Interesting. Ben, do you have anything else for Judy before we let her go? No, thanks for coming on the show. Yeah. Thank you so much. Is there anything that you would like to shout out? I've already said your YouTube channel, Asian American Legal Focus. That's all one word. I think if you search for Judy, the YouTube lawyer, a bunch of your stuff is going to pop up as well. Is there anything else for your firm? Maybe do you have a website? Oh, for your firm? Um, yes, it's actually not that great of a website, but you know, it's, it's fine. I'm happy with it the way it is. Actually, my ex-husband is the one in charge of my website, so, um, <laughs> okay. so I don't have to pay him, but it's wakelawoffice.com. And I, I do also want to mention that um, it's kind of embarrassing to find out that people have been watching these old videos that I made when I first started doing YouTube because I really didn't think anybody was going to watch it. So um, if I had known I was going to get thousands of views, I would have um, probably worked harder on making it look better and being more articulate and not rambling so much. Oh, we feel the same way yeah. about <laughs> our podcast. And I, I mean, we didn't know that it was going to be a thing. We just kind of did it. So. Yeah. yeah. I think you can be excused for that. Um, Judy Sang is an attorney in North Carolina. She graduated from UC Berkeley and Georgetown Law. She's an actual lawyer practicing solo uh, since 2006. Thank you, Judy, so much for coming on the show. Be LSAT famous. 
get on an upcoming show by emailing help at thinkinglsat.com. If you have questions for about the LSAT Demon, email help at lsatdemon.com. Check out our other podcast, LSAT Demon Daily. That was episode 344 of the Thinking LSAT podcast. Thanks all y'all for listening. Nice knowing you. Don't pay for law school. <laughs>